It's hard to imagine an American holiday table without the ubiquitous orange-crusted custard made from strained, spiced, and twice-cooked squash. This large, round vegetable is one of the first things which comes to mind when you think about holiday desserts. Whether you're rocking around the Christmas tree or traveling from Tennessee to Pennsylvania because there's no place like home for the holidays, pumpkin pie has become a much-loved part of our holiday traditions. The history of how pumpkin pie became so popular is a story that smashes together medieval traditions, indigenous food from Africa and the Americas, and the most sought-after goods of an ancient trade route through Asia and the Middle East. Welcome to Seasons Eatings, the podcast which dives into the history and origins of your favorite Christmas foods. We're now into the burr months of the year heading towards Christmas. At the time of this recording, the autumn leaves are changing to red, orange, and gold. You can hear the crunch of the leaves under your feet as you take your walk in the cool, crisp air. And for a little while now, pumpkin spice has taken over as the blend of choice for the fall season. But first, I want to let you know that Seasons Eatings has a website. You can find all the past episodes. Plus, if you're feeling generous, you can buy me a coffee. Each donation, no matter how small, is greatly appreciated and helps with the upkeep of running a podcast. Just type in all one word, seasonseatingspodcast.com. Also, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss a single episode of Seasons Eatings. And you can find Seasons Eatings on Facebook. If you can, leave a review on Google, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts so that others can find and learn about the rich history of Christmas foods. And finally, if you want to leave a request for future episodes, have a question, or just chat, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at seasonseatingspodcast at gmail.com. All of these links can be found in the show notes. But now, sit back and get comfy as we explore the history and origins of that wonderfully creamy custard-like dessert, pumpkin pie. First, let's start simply with the pie, which was more popular during the Middle Ages in Europe than it is in the U.S. today. In medieval times, pies looked much different than the ones we know today, and people didn't eat the crusts. Instead, pie crusts were made of a dough that was thick and bland, not flaky and buttery, and were most often single-used food-serving vessels. Medieval pies were made freeform, without a pie plate, so they stood higher than what we're used to seeing in pies today. Chefs poured hot gelatinous gravy into a hole at the top to keep the air out. And often, the person just eating it just broke open the pie, scooped out the contents, and threw away the crust. As for the filling, in medieval Europe there was no pumpkin. Instead, Europeans made pies with gourd fillings, favoring varieties that originated in Africa. Thanks to the Columbian Exchange, the exchange of plants, food, animals, people, and culture, brought by the European visits to the North and Central America, Europeans got their first taste of pumpkins. According to Ken Albala, professor of the history at the University of the Pacific in Stockton, California, while it took years for them to warm up to some foods from North, Central, and South America, things like potatoes and tomatoes were considered poisonous, they took to pumpkins quickly because they were similar to the gourds, with better flavor. 
Pumpkin pie as we know it is fundamentally medieval, Albala says. Pumpkin spice is a classic medieval combination. You find the cinnamon, clove, ginger, nutmeg combo everywhere up into the 16th century. By then, they're often combined with sugar too. There is a standard and food fall combinations that are spicier with pepper, sometimes grains of paradise. But what we think of as pumpkin spice goes into most recipes until French haute cuisine in the 17th century begins to banish them to the end of the meal along with the sweets. And the spice combination that we today associate with autumn, comfort and longer lines in coffee shops? In the Middle Ages, it wasn't just used for squash pies. A similar spice combination was used in everything during that time period. Not only did it taste good, those same spices were also considered a status symbol that wealthy people used to flaunt their riches. Sugar was rare too. If you could offer guests a feast featuring spices, sugar and vegetables from the New World, you were rolling. In his book, A Description of New Netherland, Adrian van der Donk, an early landowner and first lawyer in New Netherland, presented a wonderfully detailed description of the natural and cultural worlds of that Dutch colony and its environs in 1655. His observations on squashes and pumpkin, which take up much of the chapter on vegetables, include the comment that the English, who were fond of tasty food, liked pumpkins very much and used them also in pies, and know how to make a beverage from them. The English referred to in Vanderdonk's description were the English colonists in New England, where pumpkins were a staple of the diet. New Englanders brewed pumpkin ale, they added dried pumpkin to flips, and they stewed pumpkin as a vegetable. However, it was their pumpkin pie that, over the following centuries, went on to become an edible icon. The pumpkin is native to the continent of North America. The pumpkin was an early export to France. From there it was introduced to Tudor England and the flesh of the pompion was quickly accepted as pie filler. During the 17th century, pumpkin pie recipes could be found in English cookbooks, such as Hannah Woolley's The Gentlewoman's Companion from 1675. Pumpkin pies made by early American colonists were more likely to be a savory soup made and served in a pumpkin than a sweet custard in a crust. Few of our festival foods can claim deeper American roots than pumpkins which were first cultivated in Central America around 5500 BC and were one of the earliest foods the first European explorers brought back from the New World. The orange gourds first mentioned in Europe dates to 1536 and within a few decades they were grown regularly in England where they were called pompions after the French pompon, a reference to their rounded form. Pumpkins, as the Americans grew to call them, quickly became part of England's highly developed pie-making culture, which had been for centuries been producing complex stuffed pastries in sweet and savory varieties. When the Pilgrims sailed for America on the Mayflower in 1620, it's likely some of them were as familiar with pumpkins as Wampanoag, who helped them survive their first year at Plymouth County were. A year later, when the 50 surviving colonists were joined by a group of 90 Wampanoag for their three-day harvest celebration, it's likely that a pumpkin was on the table in some form. As useful as the orange squash were, especially as a way to make bread without much flour, they weren't always popular. In 1654, Massachusetts ship captain Edward Johnson wrote that as New England prospered, people prepared apples, pears, and quince tarts instead of their former pumpkin pies. 
So what were these former pumpkin pies like? At the time, pumpkin pie existed in many forms, only a few of which would be familiar to us today. In 1651, François-Pierre Lavarenne, the famous French chef and author of one of the most important French cookbooks of the 17th century, wrote a cookbook called Le Vrai Cuisinier François, The True French Cook. It was translated and published in England as The French Cook in 1653. It has a recipe for a pumpkin pie that included the pastry. Torte of Pumpkin Boil it with good milk, pass it through a straining pan very thick, and mix it with sugar, butter, a little salt, and if you will, a few stamped almonds. Let it all be very thin. Put it in your sheet of paste, bake it. After it is baked, besprinkle it with sugar and serve. By the 1670s, recipes for a sort of pumpkin pie were appearing in such English cookbooks as the Queen-like Closet, or rich cabinets stored with all manner of rare receipts for preserving, candying, and cookery by Hannah Woolley, and the complete cook expertly prescribing the most ready ways, whether Italian, Spanish, or French, for dressing of flesh and fish, ordering of sauces, or making of pastry. Woolley's recipe goes as such. To make a pumpkin pie. Take a pumpkin, pare it, and cut it into thin slices. Dip it in beaten eggs and herbs, shred small, and fry it till it be enough. Then lay it into a pie with butter, raisins, currants, sugar, and sack. In the bottom some sharp apples. When it is baked, butter it and serve it in. Woolly's pumpkin pie wouldn't look or taste quite like our Thanksgiving custards. She called for chefs to peel and slice the pumpkin into thin wedges, dipping them in egg before frying them. This would ensure that the pumpkin slices retain their shape and firmness when baked. A helpful step when cooking types of squash that were stringy, tough, or watery. Woolley's readers were then supposed to layer these pumpkin slices into the pie crust along with other fruits, apples, currants, and raisins. When Woolley suggests that cooks use sharp apples in the recipe, she's probably referring to apples with a tart or a sour profile. Although apples and grapes, uh, raisins, were grown widely in England, they were expensive and consumed almost exclusively by the elite. Woolley included sack, a kind of early modern fortified wine imported from Spain and the Canary Islands, to give the filling depth and flavor. Currants, a dwarf seedless variety of grape, were also imported in the period, cultivated in the Middle East and shipped across the Mediterranean to British markets. Taken as a whole, the ingredients in Hannah Woolley's pumpkin pie were luxury goods, suggesting that this dish would have appeared on the tables of only the richest and most well-connected early modern Britons. Shakespeare himself certainly understood these associations when he invoked the pumpkin in one of his very best insults. In The Merry Wives of Windsor, Act 3, Scene 3, the ostentatious, pleasure-loving Falstaff is described as a gross, watery pumpkin. The fact that Falstaff is often portrayed with a round, pumpkin-like belly would have made the comparison all the more obvious to Shakespeare's viewers and readers. We'll find out how pumpkin pie changed as we travel across the pond, and how a canned meat company became America's first choice for pumpkin after this short break. There's no secret that I love Christmas. And if you're like me, you have a favorite Christmas food that means it can't be Christmas without it. For me, it's figgy pudding. 
There's something about having that steam pudding that means Christmas is complete. But do you also have a favorite movie or song? How about somewhere to visit? Something that, for you, is the true meaning of Christmas? So why not let the world know? Head on over to christmashalloffame.net and nominate those individuals, events, characters, and creators who've shaped and influenced the celebration of Christmas around the world. Get your nomination in, and maybe your choice will make the Christmas Hall of Fame next year. Nominations and voting are absolutely free, but you have to be a member of the Christmas Hall of Fame to vote. All nominations need to be in by November 26 to be eligible for the next year. So head on over to christmashalloffame.net and get your nominations in. In American cookery, Amelia Simmons included two recipes for pumpkin pudding. This pudding, baked in a pie crust, contained a filling which was not built from sliced pumpkin, but more like a custard. Amelia Simmons' pumpkin pies, like today's, were made with a stewed and strained pumpkin, eggs, sugar, cream or milk, and sometimes the addition of molasses. Flavoring was added with some of the spices popular in the colonies at the time, ginger, mace, and or nutmeg and allspice. This basic format continued to be embraced by American cooks. Mary Randolph, in The Virginia Housewife of 1824, baked a pumpkin pie along the same lines, with the addition of a wine glass of brandy. Her pumpkin pudding employs only a bottom crust, with some decorative scraps of pastry laid across the top. Stew a fine sweet pumpkin till soft and dry. Rub it through a sieve, mix with pulp six eggs quite light, a quarter pound of butter, half a pint of new milk, some pounded ginger and nutmeg, a wine glass of brandy, and sugar to your taste. Should it be too liquid, stew it a little dry, put a paste around the edges and in the bottom of a shallow dish or plate, pour in the mixture, cut in thin bits of paste, twist them and lay them across the top and bake it nicely. Similarly, Eliza Leslie, the American author of many popular 19th century cookbooks, offered a recipe for a pumpkin pudding in Miss Leslie's 75 Receipts for Pastry, Cakes, and Sweetmeats of 1827. This pudding is what we would call today a one-crust or open-face pie, employing a bottom lining of puff paste rather than the common paste used for her double-crusted pies. It was most likely cooked in a deep pie plate or even a pudding pan instead of a shallow pie plate. By the early 18th century, pumpkin pie has earned a place at the table, and Thanksgiving became an important New England regional holiday. In 1705, the Connecticut town of Colchester famously postponed its Thanksgiving for a week because there wasn't enough molasses available to make pumpkin pie. It wasn't until the mid-19th century, though, that pumpkin pie rose to political significance in the United States, as it was injected into the country's tumultuous debate over slavery. Many of the staunchest abolitionists were from New England, and their favorite dessert soon found mention in novels, poems, and broadsides. Pumpkin pie even found its way into the workings of the Civil War. Many New England colonists already loved the pie, so it comes as no surprise it can be found in early American novels and poems. Sarah Josepha Hale, an abolitionist who worked for decades to have Thanksgiving proclaimed a national holiday, featured the pie in her 1827 anti-slavery novel, Northwood. 
describing a Thanksgiving table laden with desserts of every name and description. Yet the pumpkin pie occupied the most distinguished niche. In 1842, another abolitionist, Lydia Maria Child, wrote her famous poem about a New England Thanksgiving that began over the river and through the wood and ended with a shout, Hurrah for the pumpkin pie! It was not until the early 19th century that the recipes appeared in Canadian and American cookbooks or pumpkin pie became a common addition to the Thanksgiving dinner. The pilgrims brought the pumpkin pie back to New England, while the English method of cooking the pumpkin took a different course. In the United States, after the Civil War, the pumpkin pie was resisted in southern states as a symbol of Yankee culture imposed on the South, where there was no tradition of eating pumpkin pie. Many southern cooks instead made sweet potato pie or added bourbon and pecans to give it a southern touch. Today, throughout much of Canada and the United States, it is traditional to serve pumpkin pie after Thanksgiving dinner. Additionally, many modern companies produce seasonal pumpkin pie flavors such as candy, cheesecake, coffee, ice cream, French toast, waffles and pancakes, and many breweries produce a seasonal pumpkin ale or beer. These are generally not flavored with pumpkins, but rather pumpkin pie spices. Pumpkin pies were briefly discouraged from Thanksgiving dinners in 1947 as part of a rationing campaign, mainly because of the eggs in the recipe. In the U.S., pumpkin typically refers to Kirkabita people, an orange type of winter squash. In other regions, such as Australia, pumpkin may refer to any type of winter squash. While commonly viewed as a vegetable, pumpkin is scientifically a fruit as it contains seeds. That said, it's nutritionally more similar to vegetables than fruits. Beyond its delicious taste, pumpkin is nutritious and linked to many health benefits. Like the sweet potato, which I talk about in another episode of Seasons Eating Side Dish, pumpkins are rich in beta-carotene. Your body takes in beta-carotene and converts it to vitamin A, the vitamin necessary for a healthy skin. One cup of pumpkin will give you 245% of your daily requirements of the vitamin. Pumpkin is also rich in fiber and vitamin C. Its nutrients and antioxidants may boost your immune system, protect your eyesight, lower your risk of certain cancers, and promote skin and heart health. One obvious change occurred at around the turn of the 19th century, when the rapid expansion of the canning industry brought canned pumpkin to every market. Many cooks were no longer willing or able to stew pumpkin all day, and quickly embraced the canned product for its convenience. By the 1920s, canned pumpkin was a staple, along with canned cranberry sauce in every grocer's seasonal advertising. At the same time as commercially canned pumpkin was radically changing home pumpkin pie making, even more convenient and time-saving options were becoming available. By the first years of the 20th century, many consumers had the option of choosing from an array of standardized commercially baked goods, including breads, cakes, and pies, as industrialization brought new milling and baking equipment, and eventually electrically powered machinery and ovens. And while you can grow sugar pumpkins for cooking and larger pumpkins for carving, most people nowadays buy their pumpkin already processed and canned. One of the largest suppliers of the canned gourd is a company that has become synonymous with pumpkin, Libby's. Libby's was started as Libby, McNeil & Libby, a canned meat company in Chicago in the late 1800s. That's right, canned meat. The company brought canned pumpkin into its fold in the late 1920s 
when it purchased Dickinson and Company of Eureka, Illinois. Pumpkin, in general, was having a moment, conjuring saccharine sweet images of rural New England life during a time when people were moving into cities, says Cindy Ott, a professor of the University of Delaware and the author of Pumpkin, the Curious History of an American Icon. Pumpkin pie had become synonymous with the pumpkin thanks to the dish's growing association with Thanksgiving. Libby's hired a recipe developer named Mary Hale Martin to start a home economics department and promote recipes for its various canned products. The pumpkin pie recipe that Libby's and Martin were to make famous first appeared on the back of a Libby's can in 1929. It was quite straightforward. Canned pumpkin, eggs, milk, sugar, cloves, allspice, and cinnamon. There was no recipe for a crust. It simply says, pour into a pie pan lined with pastry. In the 1950s, the recipe was adjusted to the version most people know today, with the additions of dried ginger and evaporated milk, which cuts the cooking time and brings a more intense dairy flavor. Before Libby's recipe, pumpkin pie was considered a labor of love. It requires breaking down, seeding, roasting, and mashing the gourd. Canned pumpkin existed well before Libby's, but it was the company's decision to pair this recipe with its low-moisture canned pumpkin for perfect creamy, not soggy pies that was a game-changer. Suddenly, pumpkin pie was a dessert anyone could whip up in an hour. Soon, the recipe was everywhere, becoming a fixture on the can and in widely circulated magazine advertisements. The Libby's recipe was so widely circulated that you may not even know you're using it. It goes something like this. Blend pumpkin pie filling, evaporated milk, eggs, ginger, cloves, cinnamon, sugar, and a pinch of salt. Pour into a pie shell, bake for close to an hour. Let cool to room temperature. The finished pie is moist, but not too moist. Smooth with just a little texture that tickles you, but doesn't hit you in the face with the warming spices. It's the mild, silky whipped cream dollop coda you crave after a hefty Thanksgiving meal. Sound familiar? Libby's now produces 85% of canned pumpkin in the United States. Even with the wide availability, popularity, and convenience for both frozen and bakery pies, many people continue to bake their own pumpkin pies. For some late 20th century cooks, that may have meant stewing a pie pumpkin, but many baby boomers grew up associating pumpkin pie with a recipe on the back of a pumpkin can, the one with evaporated milk, eggs, canned pumpkin, a pre-baked crust, and pumpkin pie spice. Pumpkin pie spices become ubiquitous by the middle of the 20th century. What was in these packages of pie spice? Despite countless variations, the mix usually includes some combination of ginger, nutmeg, mace, cloves, cinnamon, or allspice, all of which we might recognize as the same spices widely used in colonial American cooking, although they were probably measured out more generously than they are today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Seasons Eatings. You can find Seasons Eatings on Stitcher, Google, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like this episode, I would appreciate it if you leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Google so that others can find future episodes. And as a bonus, if you let me know you left a review, email me at seasonseatingspodcast at gmail.com and I'll send you a wonderful Seasons Eatings sticker. You can also find Seasons Eatings on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To find these links to all these sites and past episodes, just go to seasonseatingspodcast.com. 
Thanks again, and drop by next time for another helping of Seasons Eatings. All music used in this episode is royalty-free and is used under the Creative Commons license.